Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. This is your host Saqib Ali. And just a little update for the listeners, I have been missing in action as some of you know, I haven't done a podcast in like more than 2 months. Uh, usually I'm pretty private, but you know it's a two-way relationship. I drop episodes and you guys from all over the world tune in and listen, so a little update. My father had a stroke and uh, he's been in the hospital for more than 2 months. So I was not in the right frame of mind to do an episode, but I wanted to break my silence just to change the scenario. and i had a big episode planned with two of my favorite guests so i thought this is the best time to come out of hibernation and put something out there and then you know uh, we can move on uh, from the personal tidbit so wimbledon is a week away and uh, you know this is one of my favorite tournaments i became a fan 37 years ago with the rise of a certain boris becker and since then my life has never been the same and today unpacking me some fan memories are two hall of famers two biggest supporters of this podcast and two of the nicest Uh, guys i've met through this podcast hall of famer steve flink and mark woodford welcome to the show guys looking really forward to to get nitty gritty with the beckers the sampras and the jokovics of the world and the federers and serenas and you know hope we have enough time welcome to the show <laughs> thank you thank you good to see you sakeb and uh, uh think thinking of you through these uh, through these last few months No, thank thank you very much It means a lot yeah It changes you when a dear family member goes through something but anyway my father is a big wimbledon fan so this is also in honor of him he's the one who introduced me to the sport he's a big bjornborg fan so steve i'll just start with you you know we did a by the way of... just quickly that's fitting bjornborg boris becker both of you were <laughs> double b's double b's exactly <laughs> <laughs> so So again, you know, like Steve, never give you an agenda, and same for you, Mark. You always kind of deliver, and this is not a surprise test. But you know, you both have had the best seat in the house through your various capacities at the championships, and Wimbledon is kind of going through a notorious political chapter. But we want to relive the past, how we got here. So I'll let other podcasters break down what the championship is going through this year with the seedings and etc. But here is just like a, a history lesson of the last thirty-five, forty years since I've been a fan. and uh, there's a lot of talk steve about how the grass has changed so if we look at 80s steve and compare 80s to 90s and you were there covering this these matches if you look at the men's tour how was the grass playing was it playing the same into the next decade and who were some of your favorite what were your favorite memories if you look at a transition from 80s to 90s of wimbledon that was a it was a great era mark mark can speak to it a little differently because he actually stepped onto those courts and performed i only observed but what i did observe was i i thought there was a certain continuity because you mentioned the explosion and arrival of becker in 1985 uh, the youngest champion men's champion ever at 17 that was a spectacular breakthrough for him and then that's you know he 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 became one of the dominant forces of wimbledon in that in that era won the title three times took it again in 86 took it again in 89 and lost a couple of finals to edberg so i thought that was an exciting period but it sort of there was a natural continuity into the 90s with pete sampras because we had the, with a brief sort of bridge you might say agassi taking the title in 92 which was highly unusual for a baseline player to come through on the lawns of wimbledon but then we had pretty much the sampras era through the 90s and uh then one of mark's countrymen uh, obviously uh, got to the final lost to pete in 2000 pat raptor but these were all it was predominantly attacking players serving volleyers for the most part agassi opened the eyes uh, for a few other guys maybe he was sort of a forerunner 
in some respects, Jim Courier lost to Sampras in the 93 final. So he later credited Agassi with showing, uh, making him believe that uh, with his, you know, potent backcourt game that he could make it work on grass. But I thought, I thought the eighties and nineties, I, I, I liked it because I thought it was grass court tennis the way it should be played. Do you agree with that, Mark? It's a good point, isn't it, that you make, Steve? I, I, I think, you know, uh, been, been uh, thinking about this particular topic over the last uh, week. And, you know, to me, grass courts, um, you, you know, the connection between the serve and volley, the athletic style i i think is synonymous um and yeah you, you know certainly agassi might have been that um you know trendsetter in a, in a way the rebel that he uh you know probably <laughs> you know, yeah. would love to that mantle um but but he you know he he really stood out um through that time didn't he because it was such a a quick surface and yet he was predominantly a baseliner and what's interesting mark is that he came and got destroyed by Lacan in 87. And then we didn't see him. He didn't want any part of Wimbledon in the next three years. And then he comes back in 91, did quite well and got to the quarters. And uh, I mean, I mean, he really had a, had a, had a great tournament and that opened it, that opened his eyes for what would happen the next year. But then the other thing that was interesting about the next year is Agassi had been destroyed Mark by Courier in the semifinals of the French open. I would never have believed watching him get dismantled like that that a few weeks later, after basically hardly picking up a racket, that he would go through Becker, McEnroe, and Goran Ivanisevic to take the 92 title. Mm. Uh, it was such a, 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 a I mean, a, a brilliant week and probably something that he uh, will never forget, um, you know, for, for him to, to hold that Wimbledon trophy um, was, was something that probably, you know, the first few times that he played on grass was out of out of his depth, out of reach. Um, but you know, he he learned to adapt. Um, and I'm just wondering, uh, as well, Steve uh, and Sakib, what you think about you know we we talk about Agassi in that respect, being a baseliner in an era where it was against you, you know uh, fast court players, One, uh, players that had a backhand slice, they attacked aggressively to the net. But we also turn back, you know, probably to decades before that and someone like Bjorn Borg, who ultimately winning five titles against uh, pr- probably more so in that era, in his time, was playing consistently against true grass court players. Absolutely. No, that's very, that's very true. That's the way it was back then and. And Agassi was something of an anomaly. Courier followed, but still, it, it was it was. I mean, you you know it from your own upbringing in Australia. You know the way you guys were taught to play on the grass, and that was the way it was done. And that gets back to Sakib's original question. To me, that was I love that era of grass court tennis because it stood out from the other majors. It really did. We knew there was this elite cast of players that was going to have a chance to win, and we knew how they were going to play. We knew how they were going to do it. And I enjoyed going there to that cathedral of the sport to see these guys have have their their moment in the sun, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Do you think though that when um, uh, yeah, and being a, a member of the the, the media covering covering Wimbledon through you know so many um, uh, years of and, and transitioning though, Steve, that did it? Do you think that it got to this to the stage where? Um, 
there, there was this idea that perhaps grass court tennis was too quick. It wasn't as enjoyable for fans. And so that, that helped uh, transition into a, a totally different surface that really it's a contrast now for the grass that we have, that, that the guys are playing on today from the grass that, that I played on. And I was pr- probably part of that transition. Um, it, it just, it got too quick. Do you think that tennis was too fast back then? I think that there's a, there's a, I, 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 that's a, that's a tricky question. I would say you, there, there, a lot of people would believe that Mark. And I, I, I somehow also think the courts, you played on them. I mean, somehow the the bounces these days seemed a little truer to me in, in some respects. So the, and the fact that you had all these servant volleyers coming forward and chewing up the court the way they did also was a factor in 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 having these bad bounces. So I yes, there was an argument that maybe it was too quick, but I still loved it because I felt like okay, the clay quarters have had their say in at Roland Garros. And then eventually the, the Australian left the, the grass and went to the hard courts in, in 88. And so you had a hard court there and you had a hard court at the U.S. Open. So somehow I thought that Wimbledon had a right to stand apart, even if it was very fast. On the other yeah. hand, totally different game these days. I, I, yeah, I, I, I agree. It, it was interesting. I think, uh, um, you, you know, look, looking back, thinking back to uh, – yeah, you, you know, my time of playing there at Wimbledon, it was more about um, the length of rallies uh, and and yes, uh, yes. Fact, the data, you know, was was very primitive compared to what they churn out today. But they, they the, the papers would scream headlines that um, the rallies are only a, a serve and plus one. Uh, it wouldn't go past two hits, and 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 it was just that you know where the, the the patrons are paying good you know money to to go in, and they're not seeing a whole lot of tennis, and um, it it uh, you know counter to uh, to today where um, the grass is playing like a hard court, and I and I, and I'm kind yeah. of sad way that um the courts have evolved into um uh producing different different grass court tennis um to me in that real sense and probably from what i'm i'm sensing with you as well steve and i'm sure sakib uh, might feel the same is it's just um it's it's not real grass um that that they have there now it it looks green uh and it looks immaculate for the whole two weeks but it is it just is not producing what grass court tennis was for yeah. decades. So Mark, Absolutely. hold that hold, hold, hold that thought. Just a, a quick, sorry, Sakeem, just to, I just want to make a quick point off what Mark was saying. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And and this is no knock on Djokovic, because I think Djokovic is a great all surface player. I think Novak would have adjusted to faster grass and I think he can play on anything. My point was just that. Mark, that he, Djokovic, I think he would adapt if he had to adapt. But essentially what Bielander said to me at one point when I was doing a book on Pete Sampras was that the grass, the Novak on the grass is no discernible difference. He's just a great player. He, he mm-hmm. plays essentially his hardcore game or his clay. Maybe he has to adapt more for the clay in some ways. But uh, that I think that reinforces your point, Mark, about the courts these days. Yeah. Yeah, de- definitely. I, I know that... Uh... I, I, I have with with Novak being able to ad, uh, adapt um, uh, to to any of the surfaces, um, you know, quick, slow, 
Um, you, you know, whether it could be hailing, I, I think that he would adjust uh, tremendously. But someone like Nadal, you know, you you were part of this era, being the great, the great one of the greatest eras with these uh, three players. Um, but I just wonder whether Nadal might be holding on to his two Wimbledon titles. Um, I doubt whether he would have two Wimbledon titles if he was playing on real grass or true grass from um, the the eighties and the nineties. Yeah, it's a bounce. Low, low bounce, right? You guys, uh, the grass is playing faster. Some people say, but the bounce is higher. It's more like a Lendl would have benefited from this grass, right? If this grass was there in your time, it's hard not to see yeah. Lendl winning a Wimbledon, right? It, exactly. Yeah, I, I that, that that's. A hundred percent. I think Lendl would probably have fulfilled that that dream of his to to hold the Wimbledon trophy. And uh, um, I look, I, I, I mean, uh, the, the the amount of times that you know played there um, was was uh, you know victorious in the, the mixed doubles and the, the men's doubles with Todd. And I, I, after retiring, um, and Todd continued playing for a few extra five extra years. And, and you know, when I go back and and commentate on, on, on Wimbledon and He'd just say, you know, hey, uh, you know, Mark, I, I, I just I think we would actually still be winning Wimbledon because the ball would actually be sitting up just a little more. We, we would have that little extra time to actually um, set up and, and hit returns and it would be less of a, a crapshoot. But the counter that to that would be, you know, we might not have been able to look Todd and I, we didn't have the biggest serves we were able to find it in, into a corner and we were able to back it up with our, our, our volleying tactics and our, our um, uh, you, you know, being up at net and the agility. Um, but, you know, on a slower surface, that's where, you know, our opponents could actually um, have a crack at our serves. But uh, um, I, and playing, going back and playing the Legends events, I mean, it was, it was um, uh, I mean, the ball bounced up so high uh, you had so much time and you you did feel kind of bare having to, well, for me, serve and volley because, look, I just see green grass and that means chip the backhand and serve and volley consistently. Um, so it was it was a real mental challenge, actually, to go back and play after they started to transition into the different makeup of grass that they were laying down on the courts there. How do you like the strings now? Do you use polyester or hybrid, or you use gut? I ha- I haven't changed uh, my my string at all uh, over the, over the time. Um, uh, I, I'm I'm unaware whether whether guys have uh, um, you know elected to do that, but uh, I, you know that just this, what stands out is you know you you can play on the baseline and that ball you know, comes through the strike zone around waist high or up to your chest, where in my time and uh, probably for the majority of, of events that Steve covered as well, I mean, it was literally around your ankles, wasn't it, Steve? Sure was. It sure was. Yeah, absolutely right. So did you talk a little bit more about when you did play the Legends and how you adapted, Mark, uh, during that, that period to, and, and how, how, how Todd felt about it as well? Well, they, they, they uh, the, the first the, the first uh, c- couple of years of going out, and of course the Legends event, they do try to honour um, you know some of the pairs by putting them back onto some of the show courts. So 
um, the, the first couple of matches. I think the first match we did get to play on centre court. And I, again, I, going through the, the time frame of when I was playing in the 90s, you know, Todd and I would go out and inspect the court as we'd go out and uh, for the coin toss. Um, we, we would be looking in the service box to see the um, the the holes um, and, and probably the All England Club wouldn't, wouldn't want me to be saying that there were holes developing in the court, but cracks. It would be like a cricket pitch, uh, Sakeem. You know, the cracks after a few days or after the fortnight, they would start to appear and we would be looking for these areas in the service box to serve to. They would, they would provide targets for us because we knew we could jag a bounce. Um, on the baseline, once we got out there, we would just inspect the, the baseline, but probably more so in the tram lines, the doubles alley, because that's where there was still some, the lushness was still there. Um, and so, you know, walking out to, to play, um, the first inspection, there, there wasn't any, there were no cracks. There, there were, I was like, what, what's going on here, Todd? This is so green in the service box. And he said, you wait till you actually, um, you know, get to hit a, a few balls. And I felt like I was so early on the, on the ball because I, I just had so much time to wind up. Um, and it, it, uh, it, it yeah, I, it just propped. It was almost playing on a slow hard court or a, a faster clay court and and uh, um, it it could still take a little bit of of spin off of the serve, you know, sliding it out wide, which uh, a left hander traditionally would utilize, uh, try to maximize as much as possible. But um, it wasn't as severe as or, or it wasn't as much help as it had been during our our um, decade of playing together in the nineties. So. Um, Whilst, again, whilst it benefited us on, uh, you know, Todd and I and the legends playing, uh, you know, returning serve, which was certainly uh, one of our strengths. We had the variety of, of shot. Um, you, you know, it also provided the opportunity for opponents um, to actually get a bit of a hit on their serve. But we are talking legends, so it was a little slower full stop. Absolutely. No, thanks, thanks for sharing that. Okay, so Mark, there's a question for you. I mean, you guys have given so many... Uh, you know, ways this conversation can go. And Steve literally reads my mind. He planted a few things that I already was coming in with. So we talked about the Agassi-Ivanisevich match. We talk about great Borg-McEnroe matches. We talk about the great Becker-Lendl matches, the Becker-Edberg matches, and now the big three matches. Where does the Agassi-Ivanisevich match rank in terms of what it meant? Was it like a wave peak into the future? Was it the classic match that Gets talked about, but not in the same wavelength as I think as some of the other great matches. So, Mark, you can go first, and Steve, you can go with the same question. Sure. Yeah. See, see, this is what I I, I love about the, you know that period of time, grass, and when you had the contrast of styles. So you, you know, uh, and I apologize, even going back to say that Borg time when he was winning his, um, you know, five five titles, um, he was coming up against other other real grass quarters. And so Agassi being predominantly that baseliner um, up against a, a real serve and volleyer um, with, with one of the best serves uh, in, in our sport, which, you, you know, um, was amplified that, that much more on the grass. So I, I think you can't take away from the enormity of Agassi actually winning 
over over Ivanisevich on that particular day um, because you, you know there was time taken away from him. Goran, you know, you used a backhand slice. He used his wingspan and and presence up at net um, after he landed. You know those those uh, gigantuan serves of his. So um, uh, just a, 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 an unbelievable result. I think probably on the eve of that match, um, you know, when, once you, you realised uh, that they were going to be the two finalists, I think Ivanisevic probably started, in my opinion, as the firm favourite. Um, but but that's probably what um, could affect Goran uh, at times, the fact that when he started matches as the favourite, it wasn't always a comfortable feeling for him. Um, and, I, and I'm trying to think back, Steve, you might have a, a, a better uh, memory of it. I'm not sure that necessarily that Goran was hit by any, struck by any nerves at the, at the end of the match um, as, as they were getting, you know, close to the end of the fifth set. But I, I, I just, I, I still have, you have to rate that particular match because of the contrast in styles that they both played in their career. Yeah, I played Plato Hyle. I think Goran got a little tight in his last service game and, and muffed an, e- an easy volley. It's but my God, that's, Nip- that's okay though. That, uh, if you wait till the last game after right, exactly. <laughs> four <laughs> hours. No, I'm trying to back your point there. It's like yeah. okay, he, yeah. he took it all the way down into the, the home stretch of the fifth set, and finally Andre was a little better under pressure. But no, I think it was it was maybe the most entertaining of, of the finals. You could argue in that because this this was, I mean, there was a nice contrast with Sampras and Courier in 93, but this one probably had the sharpest contrast, Saqib. And, and therefore, if I look back on the, the, the finals of the 90s, and there was a Sampras, even Isovich five set, it was very well played in 98 too. But what also becomes uh, enjoyable about looking back on that is that, that you saw the misery, Goran then losing to Pete in the 94 final in straight sets, losing to Pete in five in 98. We thought, Mark, that maybe his his opportunities were over, and then he comes back in two thousand one and wins that that five setter from Pat Rafter, which again was one of the more absorbing five setters. Not the best played, but a fascinating contest to watch. So little did we know that it would be nine years later that Gorin would finally right. have, have as a wild play. card. As a wild card, right? yeah. yeah. Excuse me. As a wild card. As a wild card, ranked 125 in the world. Just amazing. Yeah. That, and maybe that was the best thing that could have ever happened to him, Mark, is that all his other years, he was considered one of the favorites. In 92, as you said, there were probably more people. I saw it as sort of a coin flip, but I think more people looked at it the way you did, going in, Goran as the, as the favorite. And Steve, uh, you mentioned uh, what Agassi beat, like Becker, McIndoe, and Goran. Goran had beaten uh, Lendl, uh, Edberg. Sampras and Mark Woodford on the way to the final. So, you know, like he yeah. also had his hands full. Well, so yeah. And the Sampras match was, that was a big win. Sampras had come off beating Michael Steak, who was the defending champion. So a lot of people, we, I remember thinking at the time, Pete might be ready to win this tournament. And it didn't happen. Gorn beat him on court one. They were simultaneous semifinals because of all the rain, Mark. And so you had Agassi and McEnroe on center and Sampras and even Isvich on court one in a semi. <laughs> but yes, you're so, but Sakib, so, you're so right because it was a great run. Goran had a great run, and surely the win over Pete gave him a lot of confidence heading into the Agassi confrontation. Just wasn't yeah. quite enough to get him over the the finish line. 
And, Martin, and, I'll bring you in. There's a question I don't want to forget. So we talk about serve uh, a lot in men's tennis at Wimbledon, right? What was it like facing Ivanisevic serve and where would you rate that kind of serve? And you played him in 92. Had, you took a set of him. And I remember he was acing a lot. And at one point, you turned the racket like a baseball bat and the crowd loved it. I don't know if you remember. <laughs> we were watching it and everybody loved that part of personality from you. I think it was a four-setter. But the big question still remains, how would you rate the Ivanisevic serve on grass and where does it rank in terms of all-time serves? And Steve, you can weigh in too later on the same question. Well, it, 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 he certainly had one of the, and, and being left-handed, it was it was something that, uh, and, and I say in jest, is because I, I, again, my serve was nowhere near the level of uh, the pace uh, of, or quality of Goran's, but it was something that I used to stand there and just watch the fluidity. It it just was a pretty a good looking serve, um, and the the power um you, you know it was tough to read probably you know for for me the the two toughest serves to read was sampras as well as goran and i think goran sometimes um you know not didn't always follow a pattern um and that's what made him more dangerous because you know i think players have a tendency and certainly uh, on grass you know if you can you know serve wide um, maximize the width of the court and then come in and volley into the open court, volley short into the other service box. And But Goran, you, you know, he, he just had that ability to hit, you know, flush on the line, if not close to the line. And he could hit the corners um, with such regularity. Um, and, and that particular match, um, yeah, I, I, on centre court, um, uh, that, um, you, you know, I, 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 I felt when I played Goran and I played him many times that, you know, if I could jag um, a few returns back, um, but it probably necessitated me um, not having a, a real strike at the return of serve. It was more or less just chipping, trying to absorb his pace and react so quickly, Can you know, compact returns, um, and chip them back on that particular day, though, uh, he, he just outserved me. I think he did hit something like 40-plus aces past me. Um, there might have been a high majority of them were second-serve aces um, because when he just got onto that role, um, he, he he could hit it onto the head of a dime. Um, and uh, I, I just thought, you know, the only – what do I do? I mean, I, I felt like a metronome going – one side to the other, tick tock, tick tock, and um, that wasn't, you know, I was. It was like walking to the executioner. <laughs> so um, at one stage, I, I yeah, I do remember th- thinking, okay, well, I'll just stand here and see, uh, turn my racket around and see if I, I, I'm I'm lessening my margin. I'm, I'm trying to hit it with the handle of the racket instead of the big head, you know, racket head. But I wasn't having much luck with that either. So it was <laughs> it was just trying to. I guess trying to break it up because it was just monotonous, um, but 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 great play, great serving by Goran, and uh, um, so I'd I'd like to believe that I played him into that form that he went to the final that year. He clearly did, Sakib. He's being modest. Mark <laughs> Mark Woodford, the fellow left-hander, is the reason why Goran almost won Wimbledon. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what? You know what? It's uh, I, you uh, just to get back to great servers. I guess Sakib. I mean, 
to me, that Sampras is the greatest server we've ever had, in my view, if you package the first and the second. You're looking at only first serves. I mean, you, you'd probably put him somewhere up there in the top five, right, Mark? I mean, you yeah. know, if Pete's first serve, which, which people should talk about more because we always emphasize the second, but the placement on the first was deadly. And then you had Becker had a great first serve and Pancho Gonzalez. And I think the other one we'd probably throw in there I believe is Federer because, you know, less potent than, than Sampras, but all extraordinarily accurate and, and great under pressure. He could really count on it. He had an underrated second serve as well. What do you think, Mark? I, yeah, I, I, I <laughs> it's interesting that we're talking about even serves um, because I, I, I had this exercise last week uh, of, of putting together, you know, um, the, a complete player. Um, and and I put Sampras in uh, as the person I think as the player that I would have as a server um, be, because of his accuracy and the sting behind behind the second serve uh, yeah. as well um, and, and his ability on grass uh, certainly aided him to you know winning those seven titles at, at at Wimbledon and you know we got to watch those many times because. Um, you, you know, they, he, he played on the, the Saturday, which uh, generally we, we got to play our doubles final after, um, uh, sorry, on the Sunday, we got to right. play our doubles final a late Saturday after watching, you, you know, him go through the motions in the second week of, you know, just blitzing people um, and, and keeping points short. So um, it, it was, you know, and he backed it up though, Steve, didn't he? Pete, you know, served and volleyed. Um, yeah. and so, you know, I, I think some of the, the feedback or the, the responses by, um, you, you know, some people after choosing me, choosing Sampras as the player, um, you know, to have uh, for serving, people are, are talking about Federer. But if you think of Federer's titles that he's won at Wimbledon, um, he hasn't actually served and volleyed. No, no, no. He did. He did when he played Pete in '01, and in, in the yep. in the landmark victory, he came in a hundred. It came in hundred and nine times, served and volleyed a ton. Yeah. But but you're right. It, it as it evolved from the time he won his first title in '03, we weren't seeing from him do that anymore. The other thing I would say about Sampras versus Federer, I still think Pete's. It was a bigger serve, Mark. Bigger first and bigger second. So I I, I have to and and just as accurate as Roger, if not more so. So I have to go along with you and and choose him as the the server. What, yep. Sakib, what is your what is your feeling as a longtime observer? Who are the best servers you've ever seen? Look, I'm a little biased because you know my formative watching was in India and then came to states. So I'm a little biased towards the Becker Sampras era because you know like that's the first love when you start watching Wimbledon and all those memories. But the game has evolved. I think, uh, like you said, Federer and now Djokovic, I think they hit the spots really well. But then I think the conversation is also what they do after the serve, right? How they protect it. So uh, I, I would say my list is the same as yours. I was also a big fan of Richard Krychek. You know, I think his motion was very, you know, smooth. Yeah. When, yeah. He, when he was speaking, he could be in that short list, but his speak was more up and down compared to, say, right. like a Sampras or, a, or an Ivanisevic. So, Steve, let me come back to you and then Mark, uh, same. I'm, I'm a student here. You know, like I'm running out of questions because you guys have, uh, you know, you're reading my mind. You're staying ahead of the curve. So, Steve, let's go back to 91, David Beaton versus Boris Becker semifinal. So, Becker wins that, I think, 6-4, 7-5, 7-6. But in that 
typical match. There were a lot of 15-30 love 40 comebacks that Becker did, which became the signature of the Sampras years. So my question is, what was the most important stroke at Wimbledon in men's tennis from the Becker-Sampras transition? What is the first serve? What is the second serve? What is a low chip return at 30 all to make that one break that's needed? How was the top tennis evolving from the Becker to the Sampras years? Because everybody says Sampras was a slightly better version of Boris Becker. But how do we break it down to a fan who really live, did not live that era and YouTube tells you, but it doesn't tell you the whole picture? Yeah, that's it. That's an, I, I can't wait to hear Mark's response to this. But I would, <laughs> say, I would say the you know it's a close call between his first serve efficiency and return of serve. Because when, when Pete started to dominate, one of the things that Gullickson emphasized with him was, was improving his back end return, which he did decidedly over those years. So that gave him an advantage over other great servers too, in that he, it wasn't that the, ser- the return of serve was going to be the outstanding facet of his game, but he would make it good enough to put pressure on guys and get crucial breaks when he needed them. So I think it's a close call. Mark, your thoughts on that? Mm. Yeah, you, you know, there, there, were, there were times, uh, you, you know, having to face Pete, um, no matter the surface. You know, he could just go through um, um, matches without um, it seemingly not interested in breaking serve. Right. Um, he'd just kind of like fiddle, fiddle around and you'd, you'd, you'd get this false sense of security that you were involved in the match. And then, you know, at the back end of the set, um, you know, he'd all of a sudden he'd light it up, um, you, you know, with a couple of returns. But in particular at, at Wimbledon, I think he, he did a very good job of, uh, of absorbing uh, a lot of a lot of the returns, a lot of the servers and, and just learning to actually um, chipping it back. And getting the ball back into play and then using the ability to, um, you, you know, whether it was the forehand um, and, and thread a passing shot. But he was willing to actually um, make the opponent play a first volley as opposed to I, I always felt that Becker wanted to try and blitzkrieg the return of serve. Nice. Um, and, and, and the subtle difference between Becker and Edberg was that where there's Stefan had a little bit more like Pete Sampras, was willing to absorb the pace and just maybe, you know, chip the a few backhand returns back and then pass afterwards, where Becker was a bit more, he wanted to thump the return. And uh, so just a, a few of those nuances uh, for, for me, um, you know, between those uh, three individuals. Interesting. You know, uh, Saqib, you, I think you'll find this interesting. I was watching the Sampras even Isovich semi in 95, they played so many big matches that they played the three finals, but this was their semi in 95 that Pete won in five sets and, and he got a crucial break and with a chip back in return, as Mark is alluding to, it's a beautiful low chip return. And I, and I said, Oh, but I'd love that return. And he, and he said, yeah, you know, I've spoken to, spoken to Pete about that. And I asked him why he doesn't chip more back in returns. And he said, bud, you're out of date. You're out of date. But the fact was, <laughs> he would use it in he would use it as Mark said in a timely fashion. He preferred to come over it, but he he, yeah. he was he would use the block, he'd use the chip when he really needed it and he wanted to be sure to get a return back. And so I would say all those things are important. And the other thing we were ignoring, I guess, is the the second serve, which again set Sampras apart, and Boris had a very good second serve too. And 
that again is what the great separated great players from the very, very good players was the quality of their second serves. Right, Mark? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You you know, Boris uh, and Pete, um, and probably even, you know, uh, I feel like we should even throw in, you know, John McEnroe, uh, you, uh-huh. you know, yeah. as well as, you know, if we're talking Gorham, but their second serve, it, it took off the grass court. It, it just, it didn't sit up. Um, uh, it, it, it was like their first serve. It, it came through below the level of your knees. There was, you know, you're having to deal with the pace as well as the accuracy. Um, and again, probably the little d- differences, say someone like a, an, an Edberg um, serve was was still very much uh, a kick serve, even on the grass. So there were times that it could, you actually, it was almost like a gem because it sat up in your normal strike zone, um, you know, between your shoulders and your, your hips where those other guys there, when, when, they're, when they were confident behind their serve, they could just continually hold serve very quickly and on grass you, you know there's there's nothing worse than uh you know you're, you're zipping through these games very quickly I guess someone for someone like myself who didn't have that big serve so I had to work um through my games uh with with a bit more um it, it took a little longer to get through my games where they could be winning you know four points they were holding serve so quickly and that pressure on grass through that period of time, it, it was it just was immense by the time you got towards the back end of a, a set or if it was, you know, even into a fifth set. So, Mark, I mean, I'll come in as a fan question. You can dismiss if this question is not even valid. So what you just said kind of goes back to my school days because, you know, a lot of guys were trying to emulate Stefan Edberg's kick serve. And then as we knew more about tennis, we were reading. So there was an argument that Becker, Sampras, and later Ivanisevic were more served, less volley. And Stefan Edberg, Pat Cash, and later Pat Rafter were more serve and volley. Yeah. So do you see it that way? And, yeah. do you, and then that we can also bring in Steve and talk about yeah. volleys, how important volleys yeah. are. Gosh, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I think that's spot on. And, you know, Steve, I, I feel pretty pretty average right now because I've written down one guy's name and I know you know he's Australian so I uh and, and he's my former Davis Cup uh captain but you know I think John Newcomb as well uh on grass formidable oh yeah uh, three three-time champion um uh, and Mark Mark also three-time champion who might well have won a few more if it wasn't he was barred in 72 by the WCT boycott and then the ATP boycotted on behalf of Pillage in 73 he missed two prime years so I think yeah. John won a couple of more titles he was a magnificent grass court player and had that great forehand volley and 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 he had the best second serve of his time I right. think by by far. I loved watching Newcomb. I saw him win. I saw all of his titles, 67 when he beat Bungard in the final in the last amateur year, 70 when he beat Rosewall in five sets in the final, and 71 when he beat Stan Smith in a five-set final. John was a great clutch competitor and, and one of the consummate grass court players. But, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, um, you, you know, just had that uh, as well uh, uh, the ability probably relied more of a backhand chip return to keep right. the point alive. And then right. the forehand and his athleticism took over. But when he was serving volleying to keep, as you, as you well know, that, you know, that they, these guys, Nuke, um, 
uh, Edberg, um, Becker, McEnroe, Sampras, uh, Ivanisevic, they all relied upon not just the serve, but it was serve and volley. Um, so their athleticism, you know, shone brightly and their, um, you, you know, not just the quality of the first serve, they had high quality second serves, but they ha- had the athleticism to move in to play volleys um, uh, and probably, you know, had that chip back and return to keep, you know, on the returns to keep the point alive. So, Mark, another question. I think we explored this, Steve, with Mertz. I want your opinion. I'm sure we did. So, Stefan Edberg and Pat Rafter, great kick serves, great backhand volleys, and not world-class forehands. So, is that part of some sort of a evolution of a player? Like, you know, when you volley so much, is <laughs> there... No, I mean, again, they're great players, and Rafter is one of my favorite players. But, you know, the forehand was, say, compared to an Agassi or Sampras, he would not want to stay back with the forehand, right? And same with Edberg. He cannot yeah. stay with the forehand exchange with Lendl. So why these guys had a compromised forehand when this kick serve and volley was absolutely top-notch? Yeah. Is it, is it tennis is it, education? Might, might, might be, might be uh, you know, something to do with the grip uh, uh, as well, that, they're, that um, when they're holding the racket, that, you know, in order for them to, you know, help create that kick serve, um, there's uh, not much of a, well, that, uh, it, it's, helping that backhand side if you also think of their their backhands um you, you know from the from the ground where the forehands um the way that they that way that they struck their forehands was very um i, I almost want to say old school like a bit more um flatter trajectory um continental grip tim henman was another one uh if you think about his serve and volley um, you wouldn't go near his backhand volley. You wouldn't necessarily be wanting to, you know, direct a play in rallies towards his backhand side either because he, he had the ability to come over it and come under it and he attacked and he could defend where the, the weakness was on that forehand side with, with those three, three guys. But probably just something that they were, you know, much more comfortable, um, you, you know, with the grip of that uh, um, to, to help them with the serve and volley and their backhand volleys. Um, yeah. To see who are the best volleyers that you've seen, you've seen them all. Who stands out if you, you know, if five, six names, and then maybe Mark can give his list because listeners well, are be very curious. Yeah, I would say if I was going to package it, uh, oh boy, it's a tough one. I, I, I would start with Edberg. I would start with Edberg. And Mark talks about backhand volleys. I think Edberg's backhand volley was right up there with Tony Roach is the best I've seen. Mm-hmm. And I would say that his forehand volley was underrated. There were, I don't think he missed that many forehand volleys. He got down so low from, I would, I would, I would put Edberg up there. I'd put Rafter up very high. I'd put Newcomb up very high and I would put Sampras not very far behind them because I think as his career progressed, I think he became more and more proficient at the net and became better and better on the low volleys. And he better than, he felt, better than McIndra? Felt that way. Uh, well, yeah. maybe, maybe that's a good point. Maybe, maybe not, but uh, almost on a par. But I would say that, you know, he was a more aggressive volleyer than John, in my view. Yeah. Uh, uh, John had the touch and the feel and put the volleys into awkward spots where Sampras could really put them away. So I don't. Those are the volleyers that stand out to me. Uh, Mark, what about you? 
McEnroe had 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 that ability to read the play, didn't he, Steve? Up at up at net, got there. His yeah. his awareness, uh, and and that you know slowly builds from experience of years of of playing out there. Um, where I think Sampras was a bit more, um, you, you know, because the surf was weighted so heavily that he, I mean, I mean, look, a, a low volley is a tough volley, but I I just wonder you know, how many low volleys on comparison that he would have played compared to, you know, some of these other guys because the serve actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Gave, he didn't, he didn't have to be, it wasn't always in those low, you know, tight half volley positions, um, which, which I think is, it's not, not any, anything to take away from him. He, he, he still was up there up at net, but it's in just an acknowledgement of the quality of his serve. No, good point. I just am saying that when he was when he was forced to do that, which was less frequent, as you say, he became to me better yeah. and better at it. But no, I have to. I'd have to amend this and say for sure, John. John goes on this. Uh, Mackinac goes on this list because yes, it wasn't the most aggressive volleyer ever. But boy, as as Mark said, he read the map up there. He knew exactly. He could re- read the direction of the point. He could anticipate so well. He moved so well, and then. The drop volleys were just, just dazzling at times. So you always had to be on guard for that. And then that's you know, what, of course, made him such a great doubles player, as Mark would know from his yeah. experience in the 1989 U.S. Open. And my top volleyers are, again, I'm in nowhere near you both in terms of knowledge and what you've seen. So it's Edberg, Rafter, uh, McEnroe, and Pat Cash. Because Pat Cash could volley with the best. I think he could Good. rally at the net. Good. Yeah, he I mean, could. That's that's the name yeah. I would throw in. Yeah, he could. And again, that, that was a, a Mark. He he too, Cash had a very aggressive forehand volley. That's what I liked about him. There was no messing around. He put those volleys away emphatically when he had the chance. Did he not? That they they were. I, th- I think that's what how we were uh, taught, brought up, educated in Australia with the volleys. It's it's not about hitting a tentative volley. You, you know, it's better to go out after the volleys. I mean, and that's. Literally, you know, even to this day, how I would teach the volley. It's you're up there for one reason, and that's to finish the point. So there's no need to actually, you know, or, or, uh, why, why would you just try to float the volley into the open court? You go in and, and really stick that volley. And, and uh, without a doubt, uh, probably of more recent times coming out of Australia for, you know, Cashy and, and Rafter. And uh, again, personal experience, the first time playing Cash. Um, and uh, you, you know, uh, even on clay, and he was serving volleying, and and you know was able to get returns low. And I'm thinking, that's a good return. I'm going to get a, a second shot. I'm going to be able to load up and and maybe play. and and he he would just treat that low volley, shoelace volley, like it was a volley around his shoulder hi- height. Uh, his ability to unwavering confidence and, and assurance of sticking those low volleys, just like, you know, Pat Rafter did as well. Sure. So let's talk about the slice. We talk about Roger Federer's slice, the Ash Barty slice. We also talk about the liabilities of Stefano Tsitsipas slice. So Mark, how has the slice changed from the Becker years to all the way to the Djokovic years? Is it still the most, one of the most important shots in a toolkit to win Wimbledon? Hmm. Well, I look. I I think so. I you know for for some time now, I've been you know saying that it's still the most um, uh, under 
undervalued shot um, in, in a player's game, in, in their toolbox, and in particular on grass. Um, I, I think it is a weapon, but a weapon that is not like a serve or a forehand that wins you the point. A backhand slice is actually setting up. To, the point may, the rally may continue, but it puts you into an advantageous position, whether you follow it into net or whether you're actually placing it into an area of the court that forces your opponent to be uncomfortable um, uh, and they have to make some quick decisions. So um, I, I think it is uh, an, an integral part of um, of a player's a player's uh, game repertoire, and I, you know, probably more recent times. If I think of Berrettini, you know, the last, uh, um, you know, this is a guy that's grown up on on clay courts. Um, his game, I think, when you watch him through the year, you think, you know, it's tailor made for clay. Um, but you, you know, his results on grass, we're making the final of Queens or winning Queens last year, final of Wimbledon. Um, backs it up this year is you, you know finals again, um, and he uses a backhand slice um, uh, consistently, and and I think that's you know one of the one the, the reason why he's featuring so deeply in grass court events. Yeah, very good point. Funny, Saki, because as Mark was talking about that, my mind is flashing to the final last year, Djokovic and Berrettini in the Wimbledon final match point for Novak. And they got into a slice backhand exchange, Mark. It was interesting because, you know, Novak hit two, three, four in a row and they're, they're fencing with each other. And finally, he probed and got the error from Berrettini, who sliced into the net. And he had that look on his face, almost like, well, you you got me. You got me on the slice. I can't believe it. But it, you're right. It, it, uh, I, I also think Djokovic uses it well at Wimbledon. I noticed last year a lot of really good backhand approach shots with the slice. That he's he's improved that shot too when he can against Shapovalov he used it a lot and yeah it, it's it still has its value even with these different grass court conditions Mark that you described earlier in our podcast but but not but certainly not utilized by the general playing contingent uh, right. It, it right. by by the champions who yes. I think are, are vying for the title but not where we're back in probably my era uh, and past that, that you, you, everyone had uh, a backhand slice. Um, is, is it a natural shot? Like you need to have soft hands because sometimes commentators on tennis channel talk about Zverev. He uses it a lot, but since he doesn't have soft hands, he comes behind in most points. He's struggling. So is it also uh, one is how do, how do you say it? You use it and do you back it up with like finesse at the net? Okay. Is it a one-two punch, the slice? I, yeah, if it, it, you know, probably in relation to Zverev, I, I, I think that he is, he, he doesn't play it with a purpose or intent. It, it is more, uh, I'll play a backhand slice. It's almost like a mechanical robotic yeah. response. I'll, I'll change the pace uh, and the spin, but it's not necessarily for me, my read of, of when I'm calling uh, some of his matches, he's not necessarily placing it you know with or using it with a purpose um it's i've i've hit five or six you know of my gorgeous backhand two-handed backhands uh and he hasn't got anywhere so he will just play a backhand slice and then go back to the the two-hander um 
and I, and I think uh, yeah that these a lot of the guys the way tennis is now they don't you know an approach shot a backhand slice to me is is you use it for an a, a, with for an approach shot in order to get the volley the guys today are trying to maximize the approach shot with a, a two-hander with top spin and they don't necessarily want to hit a volley they're trying to win with the approach shot i feel yeah. like that's the balance with zverev he would rather use the two-hander and approach shot so that he doesn't necessarily have to have to, to to engage in a volley where if he actually you know took the time i mean look this is a guy that's six six five six foot five six six wingspan is actually more than able comfortable up at net if if he you know was if he was there this year um maybe it's something in the future for him to work on but you know to be able to utilize ala berrettini he should be able to take a leaf out of his book um and see how that backhand slice is used and how do you see the sitsipas slice both of you because a lot of people talk about it like you know he's a clay court slice but on grass his slice is just not as potent do you agree or is there room for improvement i i always think uh, you know i i love watching stefanos i mean he's one of my my favorite players um uh vogue players at the moment but the the one issue that i have uh, and steve um, you you can jump in as well but i i i just find his backhand slice it um again his predominant shot off the backhand is coming over the top of it um so it's not an it's not a, an easy thing it's a big grip change for him to go to a backhand slice um i feel like that he's over the last couple of seasons uh he he's gone back to trying to hit over the backhand uh too much um not i, I don't have enough backhand slices um and and it floats he just doesn't knife it but i feel like in rally mode if it, it, again we don't see or uh, um well i'll 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 say that we you know you watch sampras you you watch edberg becker uh murray um you know novak more or less um you know these great grass quarters they're able to change from a backhand slice to come over the backhand you know at call at will i don't see that necessarily happening often with city pass i'll see him engage in a rally where he's hitting backhand top spins but not necessarily putting in the change up with a backhand slice or I'll see him rally with a backhand slice and he doesn't come over the top of the backhand he doesn't get that mix the balance um just yet boy that's an ex- such a great summation it's interesting because as mark was was describing that the sitsapas backhand slice and toss and I'm thinking about many times recently mark I've heard jim currier who's generally quite praiseworthy of the players his his criticisms are mild but he's been quite uh quite critical of Sitsipas's slice back and for just the reasons you stated doesn't feel it's biting enough and and you may and you probably filled in the 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 gaps for anybody who maybe didn't understand why talking about the grips and and there i i think that maybe he needs to find more of a balance it, you know it i i i much prefer his top spin back in to be sure and 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 i but i would think you know isn't it something mark that could be also improved by by you know just by with the practice sessions too with yeah. some re- application it looks to me like his father whoever's been working with him 
has not really addressed it much. They want him to use it, but they haven't really told him how to make it more effective. Is, is that right? A good, good point. I, I, I think it's, it's repetition. Um, <laughs> you know, um, um, last year, uh, after the, the, the magnificent result at Roland Garros, we, you know, I was, was quite excited to see how uh, Stefanos would uh, arrive at Wimbledon, thinking that, you know, this, this would, you know, perhaps he'd have the appetite the drive to actually, um, you, you know, move move forward because because he is that all court player, um, and and I was so disappointed. I actually called the first round match that he uh, that he got bundled out on. To me, it seemed like that he, uh, after Roland Garros, had not spent any time on a grass court until maybe a few days before arriving that for that first round match. He just looked like he had no understanding of what to do, how to play on grass, and uh, um, it, it was a, a poor result for him. I and I said at the time, Pat Cash. I was calling on court one for um, BBC Radio. Pat Cash was calling a match on centre court, and they have that ability to interact. And um, you know, Cashy just turned around and 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 said, "So, would he tell?" What, what's going on there? And I, and I said, well, not a whole lot. I'm actually disappointed. And I, I feel like, Pat, that, you, you know, Sitsipas should be making an SOS call to an Australian player like yourself and who, who, who knows what a backhand slice amounts to uh, and that he would, you, you know, it, exponentially, it, it, he, would, he would be able to go through these matches. Um, but... Um, yeah, you, you know, it just, I, I'm interested to see how he translates this year uh, onto the grass. But, uh, uh, you know, for me, he, he's got to be able to, you know, control that second serve, the, the ball toss, have a bit more bite, and in particular, you know, utilise the backhand slice um, a heck of a lot more. That, that balance, what he uses on hard courts and clay courts, it's, it's got to move the other way to backhand slices um, leading sure. the chart. All right, so Steve, uh, first you and then Mark can go. Uh, what are some of the best backhand slices that you've seen in your journey at Wimbledon as a, as a reporter, as a fan? Uh, well, the one, the one I always think of above and beyond anybody else because it was almost a flat slice was Ken Rosewall. I mean, I, I've never seen one quite like that. So his was the standout, and I'm glad that I had a chance to see him play maybe in some of the latter stages of his prime. I got to start watching him in the mid-60s in the pro game and then on into the open era, and Ken, Ken was phenomenal off that side. Uh, more Among more modern guys, again, you know, I, I think again, uh, uh, I, I think Edberg had a terrific backhand slice as well. Now, he didn't run into the problem, Mark, Mark that you're describing with Sitsipas. I think Stepan was very adept at when he wanted to come over it and when he wanted to chip it or slice it. So I loved what he did off that side. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, those are the two. Those two stand out for me right now from very, very different eras as having e- excellent backhand slices, to be sure. Federer? Roger hmm. Federer? Yeah, I mean, yes, Absolutely. Roger, for a different reason. I, I didn't feel like his was outstanding necessarily in uh, going for depth. It's what, what he was able to do with the short backhand slice to force people to come in on his terms. It's it, it short, 
not drop, not always drop shots, just short backhand slices. Yes. And what are you going to do about this? And then force them in and pass them. And his feel on that shot was terrific. And he, he did that more effectively than anybody I've, I've ever seen, in, in, certainly in the modern era. That's and, an astute breakdown, Steve. So, Mark, I think Steve makes an excellent point. So should we separate the backhand chip from the backhand slice or is it part of the same arsenal? if 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 you want so that we can you know have federer as the 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 leader in one of those categories but i i think steve made a made a very good point there that you you know look roger's backhand slice was uh was quite amazing Uh, but you you know he led into it with you know someone uh, uh muscles as backhand um you know i even thought of tony roach's backhand um, yeah. slot. um and and certainly edberg's they they were using their their backhand slice as an approach shot that forced players to back away from the baseline they hit it with depth and we use a term i, I think in australia and in commentary uh, i'm sure you have steve as well is it's it's a knife backhand yeah and 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 those players had a they knifed the backhand. Um, Navratilova could knife it. Steffi Graf could knife it. But um, yeah, I don't, Federer, I, I, he had a, an exquisite um, a backhand slice. But it was it brought players into the court. It wasn't necessarily one that forced players to back away from the baseline because they were worried about him coming forward he delicately placed them into inside the court where they had to make this split decision. Do I go forward? Do I go back? And by the time they made that decision, Federer was all over them. No, and the reason I brought this because a lot of current fans like myself, they talk about the Federer shot, uh, you know, backhand chip, which is a great stroke. But I also remember Boris Becker doing the shot backhand, you know, on the, on the ad court. And then he would change the momentum of the rally. It was not like a knife, like a Stefan Edberg, the deep one. He would also employ those tactics. All right, so let's close this conversation, gentlemen, with the best place not to have won Wimbledon. This is a list that's always interesting. I uh, think Ken Rosewell, uh, Andy Roddick, Ivan Lendl, Patrick Rafter. These are some names that always come in motion, you know, when this conversation takes place. I always throw, throw in Mark Filippoussis because if he didn't injure his knee in 99 quarters, who knows what would have happened. But Steve, you can come in first and it looks like Mark's thinking, you know, what are the names he can bring in? But <laughs> who are the best players who didn't win on grass, but they're remarkable grass court players? Yeah, I think you touched on two of the crucial ones with Rosewall and Lendl Sakib. Now, look at Rosewall. He was in the finals in 54, 56, 70 and 74. So he was in, Mark, that's 20 years apart between first and last. Quite yeah. unlucky in some respects. He lost to Drobny in 54. It was a tricky left-hander. He lost to Lou Ho in 56. He lost to Newcomb in a five-set final in 70. And then he, unfortunately, the, the nightmare matchup for him was Jimmy Connors, who beat him in 74. But Ken was an excellent grass court player, so worthy of winning the title. And so was Lendl. I kind of lumped them together. I'm glad you mentioned them both because Lendl worked so hard to win Wimbledon with the help of Tony Roach as his coach. They tried, they really put in one year, even skipped the French to try to hone in more on Wimbledon. And he got to the finals. And I, I thought that, you know, he didn't have much of a chance against Becker in 86, Akib. You remember that one in straight sets. Boris defending his title very competently. But then the next year, I honestly thought, Mark, 
that, and I take nothing away from Cash. I thought that was a golden opportunity for Lendl, and Cash just outplayed him in straight set. But I thought going in that Lendl was going to have a very, very good chance. I, I'm sorry that he never, that neither Rosewall nor Lendl wore the robe of Wimbledon champion because they would have worn it exceedingly well. Yeah, look, I, 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 uh, it's hard to deviate away from those two um, indiv- individuals. I think certainly muscles, um, uh, you, you know, given given his his record, um, you, you know, through that time that to that to over that twenty year period of of reaching finals at, at Wimbledon, um, L- Lendl for me just wasn't. He just you know he worked hard as you said on his game, trying to mould. It, it was very difficult for him to continually serve and volley, wasn't it? It wasn't natural. There was that no, we all, no. had, we all had, have a default mole, a mode that we go back to when we're under pressure. And I think that that probably was the deciding factor for Ivan, that, you, you know, there were moments that uh, he, he would not be moving forward, which was the instruction by Tony Roach to, you know, just keep trying to go forward but you know, on that day, you know, Cashy just showed his grass court. Um, yeah. um, um, but I, I, the same with you know, with interesting that you said, uh, Sakib, even about Mark Philippoussis. To me, he wasn't a natural grass quarter um, like a, a Rafa Nadal. To me, is he's just not a natural grass quarter. He's been very fortunate that the, the surface has slowed up to have picked up his two titles. But I'm going to be supporting him this year because I would love to see, you know, that the idea of a of the Grand Slam remaining intact as as we head down, um, you know, possibly to the U.S. Open. But um, uh, I, I just, yeah, those those two in in particular, um, you know, muscles. I think number one for me, followed by Lendl, uh, are the two champions that. Um, yeah. Uh, any, any particular word on Andy Roddick? I mean, he also played in the Federal era, right? A lot of people believe he should have had a title if he was not playing in this era. Well, I think I think that Andy put his heart and soul into that final against Roger Federer in in '09, and it was an epic. And he lost 16-14 in the fifth. Didn't lose his serve until 14-15 in the fifth set. It was the yeah. first time the whole match he's lost his serve. And of course, we remember so well that he had a 6-2 tiebreaker lead in the second set, and a, he missed a back-end volley at 6-5 that could have given him a six, a two-sets lead, two-sets-to-love lead. I, I think he would have been such a worthy winner that year for sure. As uh, I, I don't put him quite up in the Rosewall uh, Lendl category. Just a quick follow-up on Mark's point about Lendl. He, it, I do think he was too programmed, Mark. I, 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 who am I to quarrel with Tony Roach? Because I brought it up to Roach once, but I always felt like in the conditions those days, why did, when you saw later with Agassi and Courier, you know, mixing things up. I know Yvonne was committed to serving and volleying, but I felt like why not stay back between a, a, a more second serves? You yeah. know, don't force yourself to do it all the time, but they believed very strongly that he had to. So I thought that might've hurt. We'll never know. The second thing is if only he'd had today's, grass courts to play on imagine Yvonne on these courts it's hard for me to imagine that he wouldn't have won one somewhere along the way and maybe two yep yeah no, I agree I agree I think he I think he would have a a, a couple of those uh trophies sitting in uh his, his cabinet uh on today's grass courts 
right. So Novak Djokovic, right? He's sitting at six Wimbledons. He could win seven. He could win same as Federer or even, you know, you know, the talk was always he could go past that. So Mark, no pressure, but who are the five or six best grass court men's players that you have seen? And no ranking, you know, because rankings can get controversial. I mean, you know, who are the five or six exponents on grass court that, you know, you who've, who've dominated the game, who've made it look easy, whatever attributes are, you know, in the Woodford, you know, repertoire, how you rank these. So take five, yeah. six names that come to mind. Well, I, I'd, I'd certainly, you know, and again, no, no order. I, I mean, I'm, I have my notes that I'd, I'd prepared for, for this uh, discussion, but Sampras, um, uh, Edberg, um, Federer. Um, did I say McEnroe? Not no, yet, you no. did, did, now you did. Yeah. <laughs> now, now I did. Um, to, to, to me, uh, and, 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 and I'll even throw in, um, well, it's hard, I'm not going to, I can't say that he's one of the, the greatest grass court players, but the idea of playing on grass um, through a, a time, um, you know, he continued on the Australian tradition. You know, like Kat, we've mentioned Kashi and we mentioned Rafter. To me, they, they played the, the true spirit of grass court tennis. And yet here we are in an era, again, Steve, it's quite incredible, isn't it, that we, you know, we're arguably one of the, we've got three of the all-time greats um, with, you know, I, I'd had Federer down. I'd had his win percentage, the amount of titles. I mean, he's won 192 times on grass and only losing 29 times. And, and then I was thinking as I'm, as I'm getting ready for this call, I'm like, hang on, I've forgotten about Djokovic. I've forgotten about Nadal. Um, you, you know, so, but they, they just, to me, Nadal is not playing a, a, a true grass court game. Um, uh, he, he's playing his game, which is stands very tall, um, uh, none, nonetheless. But I, I, I think, uh, yeah, um, Federer, Newcomb, uh, Edberg, um, McEnroe, Sampras, uh, you know, ones that uh, I, I think are true grass court um, proponents. I would say, Saqib, I, it, uh, I would see it essentially the way Mark does. The only other name I want to throw in, that we didn't get to see enough of him, and he missed many of his prime years at the shrine of the sport because he turned pro after winning his first Grand Slam in 62. But to me, Rod Laver was a, a phenomenal grass court player. He was great on any surface, but the fact that he grew up on the grass, I think in the grass court game was so prevalent in those days when Rod won his, his grand slams, uh, both, both of them in 62 and 69, three of the four majors were played on grass. So, I mean, that's how he tailored his game. And Laver was also, he wasn't known for having the greatest serve. He had a very, very good serve, left-hander, obviously, but boy, he volleyed beautifully. He got back for his smashes. He returned well. He was he was a tremendous grass court player. So I would have to put him up there when I think of Sampras, Federer, McEnroe, Labor. And then I think we have to almost separate out Novak because of today's grass court conditions. I don't want to take it away from him. I think it's a remarkable accomplishment, even with the way the courts have changed. Yep. If Novak could win six Wimbledons, nobody would have thought that was possible. And there should be more to come. Very likely. And, and, one and he's, been, 
And he's beaten Federer in three finals. I mean, that itself. Federer in three finals, which was remarkable. Yeah. yeah. Because two, yeah. Of them were five, two of them were five setters in 2014 and 2019. And the, the latter one, he saves two match points. Roger serving for the match at 8-7, 40-15 in the final set. So, yes, that. Now, granted, it's under these different conditions. But nevertheless, the fact that Federer was in all those finals tells you that he was playing awfully well in those years as he was moving through his 30s. So that says a lot for Novak and, and, and maybe means that even with the different conditions and, and trying to make a distinction there, we can't leave him off that upper crust list. Absolutely. A great list, guys, even though I'm a little disappointed that none of you brought Boris Becker in there and Edberg's name was mentioned, but it's okay. We can all disagree. <laughs> but, uh, so well, I, I want to I thank you both on such a short notice. And this was such an ill-organized podcast from my end, but you both delivered as expected. I could have gone and brewed a cup of tea and you could have kept this without me. I really loved you know, listening to you. And that Sitsipas part, like, like Steve said, Mark, that was gold. I think people will tune in and enjoy that. Hopefully we can do this again in the future in a more organized way, but it was such a delight to listen to your voices and your views. It's always gold. And, uh, you know, yeah, this is, can't thank you enough. Appreciate it. it. Thank you. Secure.